Good morning. Ooh, let's, let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you draw your children to hear your word. Bless us with ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, dear friends in Christ, I invite you to turn uh, with me to the scriptures that are before you in the Pew Bibles, pages 1280, 1281. Um, uh, this is uh, Hebrews chapter 9, the, the bulk of the last piece of this chapter. We're coming to the conclusion of the work of Christ in dying for the sins of the world. And uh, Bible study is not necessarily something we can really get into, and maybe it's something that we ought to caution against anyway. You know, I'm all for Bible reading, Bible listening. When somebody wants to do a Bible study, I know they got an agenda, all right? So all I'm going to do with you today is, is read and reflect on the death of Christ, because the death of Christ is what's at issue in Hebrews chapter 9. Starting verse 11, again, page 1281 of your pew Bible, or, or um, pick out your, your tablet or your iPhone or, or wherever you're reading this so that we can hear it. This is the English Standard Version. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because of all of this blood then, verse 15, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these, that is just the blood of goats and bulls, etc. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The word of the Lord. Let's see. I'm going to find the... Oh, there it is. I hit something. That's beautiful. Uh, 
heard a conversation yesterday, All Saints Day. Uh, uh, somebody in the pew after church talking about what he saw up in the chancel. There was a crucifix and it had Jesus' dead body hanging on it. And he said, you know, I don't like that crucifix because Jesus is risen. We shouldn't just keep him there on the cross. I've heard this conversation before. Um, that goes back a ways, generation after generation, some of it um, coming out of a, a kind of allergy that some Protestant people and church bodies have toward things that smack of idolatry in their opinion, um, icons and images and, and pictures of the cross. What is, what's with all this popery, they might say, you know, depending on, on what generation or, or what uh, time and place they happen to live in. After all, we celebrate the glory of the resurrected Christ. That's the historical act upon which the church stands. But, you know, we don't have a problem with having the Corpus Christi on a crucifix. In fact, all Christians in all times and places, the last couple of thousand years, some of the most beautiful artwork has been in altarpieces, like the altarpieces that we shift through the seasons here in our own chapel. And we confess the whole Christ, his whole person and work, his life, his ministry, his incarnation, and his death, his suffering, his betrayal, his trials, his burial, and his resurrection. We embrace the whole Christ, not just picking out our favorite bits and praying to dear little baby Jesus. We don't need to just pray to the dear little baby Jesus, right? Like Ricky Bobby in that wonderful movie. But the whole Christ, we embrace the whole Christ. But in Hebrews chapter 9, we're talking about blood. We're talking about death. We're talking about sacrifice. And we need to remember that corpus that body, that suffering, that death, and that blood for us. The balance of this Hebrews argument, as we just read and heard, might look as if we're talking about certainly the risen Christ, the cosmic Christ. Look at verse 11 again, when Christ appeared as a high priest through the greater and more perfect tent. Verse 12, he entered once for all, securing an eternal redemption. We're talking about cosmic things here. A new covenant, verse 15 says, the mediator of the new covenant so that you and I can have an eternal inheritance, not just one time, not just talking about one historical act of shedding his blood. Verse 24, we're talking about the risen and cosmic Christ as Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself so that we can go just a few verses beyond in verse 28 and talk about Christ in his return, where he's not coming back to die for sins, not coming back for more forgiveness, coming back to take you home to an eternal presence before him. But for all of that, the argument in Hebrews chapter 9 is about Christ's death and what it accomplishes. It turns out that it accomplishes something much more effective than the blood of bulls and goats. Where did that bull and goat purifying with blood happen in front of all of the people? 
You got the picture there of the tabernacle, that tabernacle made with hands as the apostle, the author of Hebrews is talking to us about. And that purifying happened, the smoke from the altar reminding us of that on a daily basis, the morning sacrifice, the evening sacrifice, daily and weekly and annually at the day of atonement. And it happened here. From 1450 B.C. onward, from the laws that were given to Moses, and then 500 years later than that, in, in a structure that was more permanent and, and even larger, but still built on the same plan, where the people could come daily and weekly, but that holy place and that most holy place, where only the high priest could go, and that only once a year in the temple that had been built under Solomon. And then that lasted for another thousand years. But dear friends in Christ, that sacrifice doesn't happen any longer. Why not? Well, there's one historical reason and one, I guess we'd call it theological reason. The historical reason is because in 70 AD, Vespasian had left his son in charge of the troops in Palestine. And destroyed the temple, sacked the city, scattered the Jews. 70 AD, the Arch of Titus reminds us of that. The carvings of the Roman soldiers taking the menorahs out. No more temple. No more blood. No more forgiveness of sins. No more shadows. No more temple. But the other reason we can say that that doesn't happen anymore, that sacrifice of blood and bulls and goats is because of God's actions in Christ. He was a victim of sacrifice. It didn't look like a sacrifice, didn't look like an altar, looked like an execution. But the argument about Christ's death here is that that was actually a sacrifice. And not only was he a victim, he was a priest as well. A victim and a priest for redemption. That's the verb. In Hebrews 9, the death of Christ is all about redemption. Now, what does redemption mean? Help me out, someone. What does redemption have to do with? Don't, don't worry. I deal with this a lot. Nobody answers my question. Somebody said something about value. I like that. Go ahead. To be made new is uh, to, to be transformed, to be renewed, or, or to be made young again, or to be made alive again. Redemption has something else, and it has to do with that empt part, that dempt part, or that empt part, that deem part, or eem part. Yeah, you know? To be bought back. You redeem coupons, man. Yeah, you, you, re you redeem things. You cut out the back of a comic book and go get a, I don't know, workout program or something. I don't know. You get, you get to redeem things like that. You're buying something back. That's what redemption's all about. But the point about Roman, or Romans, <laughs> or the point about Hebrews 9, when, when in doubt, just default to the um, best book. All right, so yeah, the, the point about Hebrews chapter 9 is that redemption, buying something back, purchasing something again, is that we've got shadows of things to come and then we get the real deal okay? it's like using play money anybody play with play money back when you were a little kid and learn how to count out fives and tens and wonder why we even use pennies anymore right uh, and then you get to the real money right when you're, you get to be an adult it's like playing monopoly versus reading a book on personal finance all right 
One is a shadow. But now, in Christ, we get the real deal. So redemption is at stake. And Hebrews 9 is telling us about redemption. By what are we redeemed? From what are we redeemed? For what are we redeemed? And for anyone who wants to argue about which Jesus you want, the little baby Jesus, the risen glorious Jesus, the the Jesus that we prefer, I tell you what, I go for the dead Jesus every single time because I want to talk redemption because I'm a beggar. I'm a beggar and I know where the value is. I know where the cash and prizes are. I'm a beggar. I got nothing. I need saving. I go for the blood. Because that's the only thing that purifies. What are we redeemed by? We're redeemed by blood. This is Leviticus chapter 17. Can you read it? Can we read it together? For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is Moses, the words of God for the people, for the Levites, for the priests, for all times and places. But it's not just for 1450 B.C. and following, not just for the tabernacle and the temple. This is how God has always worked from the time that people had blood. Mm. Time of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, whose blood still screams from the dirt where it was shed. Noah, to the time of Abraham and Moses and Christ, whose blood witnesses a louder voice than the blood of Abel to the time of you and me. Blood. That's why we confess our redemption in the words that summarize this, I think, so perfectly. Uh, Turn with me in the hymnals that are in front of you uh, to page 322, 323, because this is what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, descended, Rose again, third day, right? We'll come again to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? We're looking at the explanation, Martin Luther's explanation to the second article of the Creed. You see it at the bottom of page 322 in your hymnal. Can we read this together? What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. And serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. That's how we're redeemed. We're redeemed by blood. From what are we redeemed? We're redeemed by his blood. From sin, death, the power of the devil. Hebrews puts it this way. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We're redeemed. That's another way of saying saved or bought back. 
But salvation really is about healing. Priests in the Old Testament were more than just butchers, more than just people who knew the ins and outs of sacrifice. These were the doctors of the ancient Near East as well. They're the ones who had the most learning, the most book learning, and they could examine the body. They could tell you whether you were ceremonially clean or unclean. They could prescribe remedies. These were the ones to trust. They were the ones to trust with symptoms and also the ones to trust with the condition, right? You know the difference between conditions and symptoms. You, know, uh, you might have a sickness and you might have a cough. The cough is not the sickness. The cough is a symptom. Well, that's how it is with sin as well. Sin is a symptom. But what's the condition? It's terminal. That's <laughs> sinfulness. It's down in your DNA, down in your bones. And what's the medicine for it? We need a priest to give us medicine that can cure that mortal condition. What the author's saying here is that In this high priest, we have a doc. We have a physician. We have a priest. And the condition, our sinfulness, is now in the hands of the priest. So trust the doctor. Because all the others that came before were just students, just interns. They were faithful, the priesthood, but they were TAs. This is the faculty on record. Trust the doctor. All right? I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed by blood. And in Christ, I'm redeemed finally from sin, from sins, and from my sinfulness, the entire condition. So what am I redeemed for? I'm redeemed for life. Say it with me. I'm redeemed for life. I'm redeemed for life. I'm redeemed for life. Not just like for life forever. That you know, We use that phrase to mean I'm, I'm redeemed all the time. Like uh, you have a pension for the rest of your life. Or hey, be a millionaire for life. You know, Give me a couple of bucks. But for a life, we're redeemed for a life that anticipates his return. The objective facts of Hebrews 9 are right here. When Christ appeared as a high priest, verse 11 He appeared as something that fulfills, something real, something new. No more monopoly. We've got the real deal. But the other objective fact that we're redeemed for is knowing and watching, especially in this season as the church year closes out, as we get ready for Advent again, for Christ's second Advent, in which he will not be coming to forgive sin, but to live eternally with you. That's the reality. That's what we're looking for. This is a Christ who is coming back to bring me to new life, to bring you to new life. So no more arguments. No more arguments about which Jesus uh, is the flavor of the week, which one you would prefer. No more arguments about the body of Christ on the cross. No more arguments about where your redemption comes from. You are saved, saved through his blood. Oh, precious is the flow that washes white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.